Pop Your Political Bubble with Keep It, a new Spotlight podcast on Spotify. Hosted by Ira Madison, Keep It discusses pop culture, politics, and what happens when they smack into each other at alarming speed. And with Spotlight, you now get photos, videos, and animations that get you closer than ever to the real story. Keep It, a new Spotlight podcast only on Spotify. Keep It is also a a show from the Crooked Media Empire, and Ira Madison isn't just Ira Madison, the host of the show. He is Ira Madison, my pal, and he's hilarious and funny, and you definitely should listen to the show. I have no idea what kind of further goodies you get using Spotlight, but now I'm going to find out. So keep it. Don't just keep it. Like, listen to keep it. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. This week features a conversation with an actual friend, and though this show is designed to to create some uncomfortable situations uh, and hard conversations. I'll be honest with you, this is the Marvel Universe uh, fan podcast today. I'm going to talk with my friend Jamil Smith about Black Panther. It's a conversation that winds up going in uncomfortable places, but uh, it starts off being not uncomfortable because quite frankly, I just wanted to talk about how much I love the movie, at least for a little while. And thank God Jamil was here for it. Jamil Smith wrote the Time cover story on Black Panther. He is a columnist for the Huffington Post and the LA Times. He is a regular friend of the pod. He's also been on Love It or Leave It. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, my friend. I think I'd like to start us off by having you read an excerpt from your piece, the cover story on the Black Panther that appeared on Time a couple weeks ago. Yes, yes. uh, February 19th issue. So, uh, yeah, I'll read this piece, uh, just a couple paragraphs. Black Panther was born in the civil rights era, and he reflected the politics of that time. The month after Stokely Carmichael's Black Power Declaration, the character debuted in Marvel Comics Fantastic Four number 52. Supernatural strength and agility were his main features, but a genius intellect was his best attribute. Black Panther wasn't an alter ego. It was the formal title of T'Challa. King of Wakanda, a fictional African nation that, thanks to its exclusive hold on the sound-absorbent metal vibranium, had become the most technologically advanced nation in the world. It was a vision of black grandeur, and indeed, of power in a trying time when more than 41% of African Americans were at or below the poverty line and comprised nearly a third of the nation's poor. Much like the iconic Lieutenant Uhura character, played by Nichelle Nichols, that debuted on Star Trek in September 1966, Black Panther was an expression of Afrofuturism, an ethos that fuses African mythologies, technology, and science fiction, and serves to rebuke conventional depictions of, or worse, efforts to bring about, a future bereft of Black people. His white creators, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, did not consciously conjure a fantasy world response to Carmichael's call. But the image still held power. T'Challa was not only strong and educated, he was also royalty. He didn't need to take over. He was already in charge. Thanks, Jamil. I think just so much is packed into those two paragraphs about the the comic book and the movie and the power of that image. Um, so when I told my husband we were going to go see Black Panther, uh, I should say he's just not a comic book guy, but he assumed it was a documentary. <laughs> that's okay we still like him (laughs) no i love him very much um and i was like well maybe in some ways it is um and i (laughs) i i 
I'm sort of torn about how exactly to proceed because a part of me just wants to talk about the movie, right? Like it's been, there's been some rough things that have happened in our, in our culture, uh, in our nation for the past few weeks. And part of me just wants to celebrate this beaut this like bright and beautiful thing. Right. I think that's what people are missing a little bit in the midst of, uh, you know, the political conversation that, you know, thankfully I had an opportunity to be a part of, which is that the movie is just fun. It's a fun watch. I've seen it four times <laughs> and every time I have fun watching it. And um, it is, it's, it's just, it's a fun ride. There's hardly a lull in the entire course of the plot. Um, it offers some interesting twists and turns and the action's cool. So, you know, and it's really cool in 3D. What's yeah. to complain about? There's nothing you complain about it. Um, my one, uh, my one complaint, my one quibble with the movie is that Michael B. Jordan is just so good that he does kind of steal the show. Like he's just <laughs> he is, and, and this might be my, you know, uh, estrogen speaking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can feel what's coming now. Yeah, um, you know, I just I, there's nothing like a bad boy, right? Um, although he's very bad, very, very, very bad. And yeah. And, and, and I think that's a really important point you touch on actually, is that he is actually a bad guy and people I think are getting a little bit, uh, confused about that. Uh, as much as we sympathize, especially African-Americans, um, you know, born in urban you know, neighborhoods that have suffered as much as Oakland did in the early nineties. Um, I think people are missing the fact that, you know, this guy, you know, kills two women. In the course of this film, he, he he kills a lot of people. That's what those scars on his body are for. And he his girlfriend dies and he doesn't even like blink. Like no, not only does his girlfriend die, he kills her. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so 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 not not only he doesn't blink, that's right. he kills her. And that's also right. he is not, you know, merely seeking black liberation throughout the world with the power of Wakandan weapons. He is seeking in to build empire. He has indeed learned from the, you know, the, the regimes that he is as a, you know, as a JSOC uh, special operative, you know, he's learned how to take down governments and how to, you know, replace uh, people who are in the seat of power. And he's not necessarily looking to, you know, help black people get revenge necessarily as much as he's looking to build a Wakandan empire. And he says so explicitly. So, you know, as fun as it is to, you know, engage in the, the hashtag Killmonger was right conversations. I think we do need to remember what villainy looks like. And we should point out uh, Michael B. Jordan plays Killmonger, who is the real villain of the movie. There's there's another villain uh, played by Andy Serkis who kind of is more of the MacGuffin. He kind of gets the plot going. Um, mm -hmm. But the real battle is between Killmonger and, and Black Panther. And I want to say that the people who have framed this as Malcolm and Martin are really doing Malcolm a disservice. Um, <laughs> they're doing both men a disservice. I mean, I actually this is talked true. to Chadwick. This is true. I, did, I, I talked to Chadwick Boseman about this, and he, he mentioned that, um, you know, there were some people who had issues with essentially a brother fighting a brother, mm -hmm. you know, in a movie that centered black people to this degree. Um, why do we have to be fighting ourselves? And I thought he said something really interesting, which is, you know, what they don't realize is that the greatest conflict that you will ever face will be the conflict with yourself. And he's saying, essentially, this movie is through its central conflict, working out issues that the black community, um, you know, whether it's black communities in Africa, um, whether it's black communities here in America, um, have been struggling with and wrestling with for a very, very long time. And it does it within this, you know, Afrofuturistic uh, comic book context. 
And so that those I, I, I admire Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole, who wrote this piece, because they didn't need to take those kinds of chances. They could have easily made a, a paint by numbers, uh, you know, Marvel movie that didn't engage with political issues in the way that they do in this film and, and probably made, you know, a similar amount of money. But I think people, you know, what you're seeing in audiences is, is a respect for going there, a respect for reflecting, um, you know, perspectives that, that we all share and not simply putting a black face on a character that could have easily been any color. Yeah. And I think you're right. Well, speaking of money being made, it's now looks like it's going to make a billion dollars easily. I mean, it's at 700 million worldwide. Right. Uh, right now. And that's after two weeks. And it had, you know, 100 you know, a little bit over a hundred million in the second week, which is just unheard of for this kind of film. So it is a potential that it could be the largest um, Marvel box office ever. And uh, out of 18 movies, that's saying something. So let's just stay in the world of the movie and talk about the characters a little bit more, because I think there's a lot to unearth there. Um, One of the things I loved in the excerpt that you read was talking about how the Black Panther is not an alter ego. I right. think that's actually hugely important in terms of why he resonates so much. Um, yeah. And, and especially with me. I mean, one of the things I always loved the most about my favorite superhero when I was a boy, Superman, was that Superman was who he was. Um, you know, if you think everyone thinks back to the famous Kill Bill monologue, um, you know, Superman is who he is. And Clark Kent is his imitation of the human race. And that I thought was just a really fascinating thing for us, you know, someone with that kind of power to have to do. And the fact that, you know, we're not all tied up in whether or not people recognize T'Challa, you know, as Black Panther. You know, if he puts on a pair of glasses and all of a sudden no one knows who he is. Um, I think that, you know, to some degree, comic books wasted a lot of time with that. Um, I think that, you know, with secret identities and whatnot, the, the important thing is to show that, okay, this is a person who... He has public power. Everyone in the world probably knows who he is or could know who he is. Um, and how does he use that power? How does he use that wealth? How does he use that intellect and those resources? And that that is much more interesting choice than how does he do his job without revealing himself? Well, I mean, I think I would sort of point out there's some some kind of metaphor or trope of white privilege in being able to have an alter ego. Also, mm-hmm. and also in in kind of having the possibility of a superpower. Like I'm just you, you think I'm when you imagine your favorite superhero. Like oh, you think I'm just this everyday normal person, but really in the inside, I'm a superhero. Um, <laughs> and then with um, T'Challa, he just is powerful. And what an amazing statement that is when you know part of the black experience in America is to hide your power. Mm. Yeah, he was, he's, he's, especially he's if you're a black man, right? Especially right. if you're a black man, like you are not, you cannot be threatening, you know, you, you cannot, or I shouldn't say you cannot, but. Well, you're, you're encouraged not to be threatening. You're right. encouraged to, to hide those attributes of yourself that normally any white person can, can go, you know, full on and exhibit. I mean, look at what, look at how Barack Obama has had, you know, had to be president and look how Donald Trump is being president right now. You know, just think about the exhibition of anger, of frustration, uh, you know, going off the cuff. Uh, There is no way in the world that Barack Obama, even if he had that kind of like, you know, reckless temperament, Mm. could exhibit that in public. Um, And I think to some degree, 
perhaps to a large degree, it affected his presidency. It certainly, you know, affected, you know, certain policy decisions, I would say. And so you, you look at that metaphor, you know, drawn into the Marvel universe, you know, here is T'Challa who, you know, essentially has to rule a nation and has, you know, he has to make similar concessions, but he has to make concessions because he is, you know, he's a head of state. You know, he's not simply, he's not simply a superhero. So I think that dynamic is incredibly interesting. You know, here's a guy who has to make sure his country is running and that his people are protected. And yet he, he can't just, he's not Batman. He can just, you know, go off in Gotham city and just beat up a bunch of thugs every night. You know, this is a guy with real responsibilities. Right. And he doesn't have to, he doesn't have to apologize or, or try to, you know, scrape for power. Like he just has power. It is just part of his part of his heritage, which, right. again, compared to the black experience in America, it's just it's this is, you know, Wakanda is the fantasy as if of, of never having had colonialism or slavery be a part of your history. Right. Um, and I feel like, I mean, that's been written about a lot. And I think it's an incredibly powerful thing. And I sort of almost want to push back that this isn't just Afrofuturism, although I want to kind of make the, the excuse to have you on the podcast today because I want to declare March Black Future Month, not Black History Month, <laughs> um, is that this is an entirely different vision for civilization. It's not just like reimagining the past or reimagining the future. It's, it is what, what if this, uh, this, this defining thing that happened, a d- thing that defines white America and black America, if it didn't happen? Right. Yeah. What, what, what kind of powers? And of course, you know, no one's, you know, saying that if, uh, if colonization and, and, and usurpers didn't invade Africa, that, you know, they would have been blessed with a vibranium meta, you know, meteor <laughs> that would have <laughs> enhanced their plant life and, and given them uh, advanced technology. The point, I think, of the metaphor is to say that if you had been, un- if it had been untouched by uh, colonization, untouched by the the pain and 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 the violence visited upon them by 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 white outsiders that africa would have had a chance to evolve on its own to potentially something you know you know i wouldn't say greater than it is but something different and i would love to have seen what those 54 nations that make up that continent could have done uh without outside interference and wakanda at least offers us a um you know, science fiction, fantasy version of that. And, you know, in what they argue, I think what's a really potent thesis is that, you know, a lot of things would have been better, not just for Africa and for its nations and for its people, but for the rest of the world. You know, there may have been technologies and inventions and groundbreaking discoveries made in those countries that never got the chance to develop because of, uh, of the way that the, those people were oppressed and, 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 de- and, and, you know, and, and essentially put down. And, and I think that that, that metaphor also applies to African-Americans life here in, in, in America, you know, what kind of inventors and, and, and doctors and, and mathematicians um, could have emerged from section eight projects, you know, that, that, that never will see those opportunities because the, uh, the pathway is, uh, is filled with too many obstacles for them. Right. And it's a very direct um, question asked in the, in the movie with Killmonger, which is what if Killmonger 
hadn't had to live in Oakland? <laughs> what if he had been brought back and raised in the royal family in Wakanda? How right. would he have turned out then? I do have one, the other, I forgot my other quibble with the movie, which is there was no good reason they couldn't have brought back uh, Killmonger to Wakanda as a child. This is actually something actually, I've been talking no about good with reason. some friends. No good reason. They could have done mm-hmm. it. It's not like, by the way, because I actually, like, you could even make it a point, like, black babies, you know, black children um, disappear and die every day. Like, one more missing in Oakland probably not would not have raised many yeah. eyebrows. Right. I mean, um, I mean, maybe. maybe. I mean, yeah. wow. That's, 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 that's an interesting way to think about it. But I, I think that, well, you, you know, I was going to make a political point out of it. Like if you if you had it happen, it would be like, you know, we are happy to sweep this child out of Oakland because he's going to do better here. Yeah, anyway, go ahead. No, no. I mean, I just you know, you have two Dora Milaje soldiers there and you have the king of Wakanda dressed as the Black Panther. Uh, <laughs> I don't you know, I think that someone would have noticed uh you know, him, him, him being scooped up. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that obviously they made the wrong choice. I think the film, the film makes a, a definitive statement on that. Well, yes, I just, but, it just kept bothering me. That this is just like my, I'm one of those people that sometimes if I find a logic hole in a movie, like I just, oh, I just can't. No, but to me, it's a metaphor. You know what I mean? The abandonment of Killmonger is a metaphor for the separation um, that African-Americans feel from the continent. That was, you know, essentially separation that we had no say over. You know, Eric Stevens has no say in whether or not he stays in Oakland or gets to go to Wakanda. You know, we have no we had no say in whether or not we were brought to this continent or and abandoned here or, you know, or enslaved here. We have no say in the choice to separate us from our past. Mm. And so there are issues that come with that and when you have someone you know like Killmonger who turns out bad um and who spends his life essentially looking for vengeance um and I think it's a metaphor for for how things can uh, the, the the sort of ill effects of colonialism and uh of this you know this cultural divide uh that is you know just a, a byproduct of all of the violent uh, suppression and, and oppression of black people throughout this world. Okay. I'll, I'll let you paper over my problem with the logic hole in the movie with that beautiful read on it. <laughs> and we're going to well, take a quick break. So we'll be right back. Do you have a mouth? is perhaps the best opening line of any ad I've ever read, but of course you do. (laughs) Now you can take better care of it with Quip, the electric toothbrush that looks like it was designed by Apple and cleans like a premium electric toothbrush, but without the high price. Quip is the new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into a slimmer design at a fraction of the cost of bulkier traditional electric brushes. And guiding pulses alert you when to switch sides, making brushing the right amount of effortless. Quip also comes with a mount that suctions right to your mirror and unsticks to use as a cover for hygienic travel anywhere, whether it's going in your gym bag or your carry-on. And because the thing that cleans your mouth should also be clean, Quip's subscription plan refreshes your brush on a dentist-recommended schedule, delivering a new brush head every three months for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. Quip is backed by a network of over 10,000 dental professionals, including dentists, hygienists, and dental students. Most toothbrushes don't get named one of Time Magazine's best inventions of the year, but Quip did. Find out for yourself why. If, of course, you have a mouth, which I'm hoping that you do. Quip starts at $25, and if you go to quip.com slash friends right now, you'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's your first refill pack for free. 
at getquip.com slash friends spelled getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stephon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I kind of want to widen the scope of talking about the movie a bit and want to ask you, do you think Black Panther made any compromises uh, to become so popular with audiences that are of all colors, apparently? I saw a screening of Black Panther in the suburbs of Minneapolis. You can take a, just a wild guess at what the audience you know, complexion looked like. Uh, it was about what you'd expect for a suburb of Minneapolis. Um, was it white? <laughs> it was white. It was, there, was this, there was a sprinkling of uh, pepper. Um, but it was largely white and people loved it. There was applause at the end of it. Um, huge uh, turnout for the 1030 a.m. showing on a Sunday. Um, so I can only imagine what the other showings were like. Uh, and I because I've I'm, I'm been thinking about this Donald Glover profile. that was in the New Yorker this week. It's interesting to read kind of in tandem with the Black Panther conversation that's happening because that's a profile that's all about his work on Atlanta and his desire to to. I think one of the themes is to make uh, art for a black audience that is distributed by maybe white companies and and white people involved, but that he's thinking very specifically about black audiences. And he talks a little bit about compromises that you have to make if you're going to do that. Do you think that Black Panther made compromises in order to have the popularity that it's having? Judging the film on its, you know, on its face. I don't see too many areas in which it made compromises to make white people feel comfortable. I think it actually went out of the way to make sure that white people understood that they were watching a black story through a black lens. The way it treats its white characters, um, I think, is is an indication of that. Uh, certainly, you know, when you look at you know, Martin Freeman's character, Ever K. Ross, the CIA agent, um, you know, 
how he is addressed as colonizer, how he is uh, silenced uh, when they get to uh, Jabari land. That is a direct message, I think, to that audience to say, look, you need to be quiet and listen occasionally. You need to hear what we are saying now. This is our time to speak. This is our time to express ourselves. And, you know, there may be, you know, you know, points in which we would welcome your allyship, you know, but at the same time, you know, understand who is in charge here. And that is, you know, something I think I wish that white America didn't need those kinds of reminders or, or, or those kinds of overt statements. Um, but at the same time, I think that it, 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 it you know, not only proves to be some of the funnier moments in the film, certainly for me, but also it was, uh, you know, maybe the kind of sledgehammer that some audiences need, you know, they need to understand that, you know, in this movie, white people essentially play a sidekick role and they are not here to uh, be the, the, the main feature. So if there are any compromises, I would say, I think it's, you know, it was more of a, an effort to make it overt to audiences who are not black uh, that this is a black movie and you are guests here. And <laughs> I don't think that necessarily there's anything wrong with that. Certainly that point gets driven home to us in more movies than I can count. I'm going to borrow, I think it's an Aziz Ansari riff um, from a few years ago when he's talking about people of color being represented at the Oscars and how, mm. how great that feels. And he wonders, is this how white people feel all the time? Right. There's a viral, there's a viral video of the, 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 the brothers who are seeing, they see the Black Panther poster and they see this myriad of black faces on this poster. And one of them actually hugs it. And that's, it's literally what he says, I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, is this what white people feel like all the time? When you see a poster full of white people, is that what white, white people think or how they feel like? And, you know, the key here is not just that Black Panther, it can have this kind of success, but also can pave the way for more stories to be told through a black lens, through more stories to be, you know, for, for Hollywood to understand that you can make major profits on stories that center black people. Uh, you know, um, the, the key, the key to success, in my opinion, is not to, you know, signal Black Panther as a unicorn, but to, you know, the, recognize the day that, you know, it's normal to have, you know, a myriad of perspectives, of a myriad of cultural perspectives represented in mainstream films, you know, that are designed, that are engineered, like superhero movies are, to make money. You know, when Hollywood engineers a movie to make money, too often the default is white. And hopefully this movie can be a part of changing that equation. I, I think you're right. I also still remain fascinated by the fact that it is doing so well and that yet the argument that there are things that black artists have to do to, in order to make their work more appealing to white people. I think Issa Rae in that same article uh, the Down Clever profile in The New Yorker says that sh when she was putting her show together, someone said to her, you're going to have to have a, a white person in it to, for white people to, to watch it. And she was like, wow, it really is that easy. Like you get a white audience if you just add a white person. Right. Um, and I think I'm wondering if the thing that makes Black Panther able to cross so many 
uh, cultures is the fact that the superhero story and a story that, you know, frankly, is a kind of a violence between good and evil is itself cross-cultural in a way that maybe humor isn't. Hmm. Expound a little bit about that. Almost any culture you could name in the world from, you know, Asian cultures to Caucasian cultures uh, to um, Aboriginal cultures, uh, Native American cultures have stories of heroes, right? Right. That rise up and do battle to protect their people. And that's just like a, a, that's like a Joseph Campbell myth, right? And I think it, 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 it goes beyond race. I think it's, it's a real human story. And I think comedy sometimes is a little more culturally dependent. Mm, like, it. I think like, I keep on thinking about Atlanta, right? And, and, and Don Glover and like what he and how he left community, for instance, um, which is, I pretty that's a pretty white show i would which, say which i didn't watch um, it's a great it's very funny but like atlanta I've, I've only seen a little bit of atlanta but it's it is very unusual television <laughs> it yeah, is, i mean here's here's the one thing well, not one of the main things that i love about atlanta. Right. and i'm also thinking wait, i'm also thinking about like medea and like the best man and stuff like you you, you know sh- comedy hits you talk about in your in your piece but the did and have a white audience, but that really, you know, gained their popularity through an African-American audience. Right. I mean, I think like it's, those are two really interesting examples. So Medea, you know, of course, essentially are, you know, is the Chitlin circuit play elevated to the big screen. You know, you, you know, these plays that are marketed strictly to African-American audiences um, that, you know, reflect, you know, more sort of like, I guess you could say localized humor uh, where, you know, the best man is a film that, you know, has a lot of universal themes um, reflected through a black reality mm-hmm. and it's just impeccably executed. Now, you know, the best man, I, I made sure I mentioned that film in the article because that's a film that made at least like three times its budget it was a very financially successful film. Mm-hmm. And Girls Trip also, I mean, is another movie, right. obviously, that just took off and is Black-centered. Um, and also even uh, culturally centered on African-American experience, right? Like, the whole point of that movie is an African-American experience. Yeah, the 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 centering of African-American experiences within universal themes. And I think Black Panther does a lot of that as well. Um, and I think Atlanta does a lot of that. Um, the key is, you know, Atlanta... Black Panther, those are two forms of art that are unapologetic about their blackness. They're unapologetic about uh, trying to present, uh, you know, what they can, you know, within the context of, you know, their shows. You know, Atlanta, of course, is a more realistic setting. Within the context of their shows, they are showing and reflecting black experiences. And the way that Atlanta deals with that is is it's really trying as donald glover says in the new yorker piece he's really trying to make white people uncomfortable and he's really trying to help them understand what it feels like to live your life with the ptsd and that's not an over exaggeration the ptsd that a lot of african-americans feel from having to deal with racism on a daily sometimes hourly basis 
Okay. Um, and that is a really courageous thing to do, but it's also a really artistically interesting choice. And so I think that Atlanta remains one of the most fascinating shows I've seen out, that come out in a long, frankly, a long time because it just essentially think about how friends was about nothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just white people essentially existing. Um, and you know, there was humor and, you know, whatnot, you know, there's relationships. This is black people existing within a more realistic context. Right. Guys, everyone wants to look as great as their date at a wedding or special event. The trouble is there's no way you want to spend the amount of time and money that your partner did shopping for his or her outfit. Blacktux.com is your answer with high-quality rental suits and tuxedos delivered to your doorstep. Blacktux is the easy way to rent suits and tuxedos online. Blacktux lets you create your look or choose from tons of stylus-selected outfits, suits that usually retail for $1,200, but at Blacktux, they start at $95. They provide expert customer care, and they have your back every step of the way, and it's all completely done online. With Black Tux free home try-on, you can see the fit and feel the quality of your suit months before your event. And after ordering, your suit will arrive 14 days before your event. If it's anything less than perfect, Black Tux will send you a free replacement right away. And when your event's over, just drop the rental back in the mail. Shipping is free both ways. To get $20 off your purchase, visit theblacktux.com slash friends. That's theblacktux.com slash friends for $20 off your purchase. The Black Tux. Premium rental suits and tuxedos delivered. I actually think that in the article, the author, Tad Friend, suggests that Atlanta is Seinfeld. Um, yes. For black people, a show about nothing because it because Friends Friends is a really interesting counterpoint, but Friends almost like elevated the nothingness to the like they never admitted it was nothing. They just had the they just had the point of the show be really stupid, like the one about like their whole all their every show is named you know the one about or the one with or whatever. Okay. Whereas like Seinfeld really was like existentially void. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> And I think that that void also exists in Atlanta and it's just much, and it's, they call attention to it even more like the pace of the show, like the surrealism of the show, the, the discomfort of the show. I will say, yeah, it, that show, I get him making white people uncomfortable. It's, it's amazing television. He's like one of the most talented, you know, um, artists, um, working today. It's hard to believe that he does all the things that he does. Like, yeah. I mean, I thought I, one of the real most interesting quotes in the piece um, you know, when he starts talking about Castaway, the Tom mm-hmm. Hanks film in which he's abandoned on a, a you know a remote island, and if you think about that being inspiration for the show, it just makes so much sense. You know, it's it's because that that that's a very stripped down narrative, and I think Atlanta is very much the same way. You know, Atlanta feels like watching my cousins, you know, at the house, you know what I mean? Just doing stuff, you know, just, <laughs> just going around, you know, talking shit and just doing things. And that is, that's a, you know, it, 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 it's a really, really interesting way to go approach a show, especially when, you know, you're, you don't center any kind of whiteness. Blackness is at the heart of the the narrative. And so, you know, the one quote he says here, where he says, you know, there's barely any spectacle. People want that right now. They just want to know how to survive when the world ends. And 
and that just that just punched me in the gut when I when I read it because you know that is that's what the show shows you know like, you know these are people really when you watch the you, these are people who probably never leave Atlanta they don't have as of right now you know that much of a future in a sort of commonly understood sense but they're existing and they're surviving and you know that being enough for a major show, you know, that, in, that, that centers people who look like us, that's a pretty revolutionary thing. Mm-hmm. Usually when, you know, African-American narratives are centered, it has to be around something extraordinary, you know, well, like and a superhero, right? Like, like Wakanda, <laughs> for instance, <laughs> and Atlanta uh, shows a pathway to what I hope may be the future of Hollywood and the future of film is to show, you know, more ordinary Black narratives and market that on a major scale. I don't remember where I heard this truism, but I've been thinking about it a lot in our conversation, kind of a compare and contrast between Black Panther and Atlanta, which is that uh, superhero movies are usually fighting the last war and comedy is the one dealing with the future. Hmm. And I, I think I could see that using these two pieces of art to make that argument because it's some. It feels a little bit like Black Panther is an outgrowth of the Obama era more than it is the Trump era. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, and whereas Atlanta, that's that's the Trump show. That's I would I would have really be interested. First of all, I'll be really interested to see what Black Panther two is like. (laughs) Black Panther er, as I have because. Black Panther 2, Black Panther, <laughs> er, Black Pantherist. Yeah, anyway. I like, just sorry, I have to make my <laughs> joke, which is that I'm really looking forward to Black Pantheist, uh, which of course is a show about <laughs> Afro-American spirituality. <laughs> right, yes. Well, Shala now, <laughs> now worships many gods. Well, Surprise. you know, like Bast and then who else, right? So anyway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm really looking forward to seeing what a Black Panther movie that was generated wholly in this Trump era does. And what, what is that? What, what kind of issues does it confront? Of course, we have to see what happens with, you know, Avengers Infinity War and see what, you know, the trailer looks like aliens are swarming Wakanda. I'm like, oh, great. You know, mm-hmm. They're discovered. But um, we, I would love to see how Coogler and the other filmmakers at Marvel Studios really confront that issue. And also whether or not they choose to shy away from it um, in light of the fact that, you know, it can be a little bit more uh, politically volatile. So um, I don't anticipate having talked to Coogler and Bozeman for that, for the timepiece that they planned to shy away from anything. Uh, You know, Coogler is, you know, this young 31 year old filmmaker who's just hungry and is, is, he's, he's really, working through things in interests and, and, and issues that he's dealing with in his own life uh, through his, through his artwork. And he tells me that, you know, somehow, whether it's Fruitvale Station, which is the you know first feature film he made about the last day in the life of Oscar Grant III, uh, who was killed by police in the Bay Area years ago, or it's Creed, you know, that, that really incredible sequel to Rocky that he, you know, took the, takes the myth in a completely new direction. Um, 
they all end up being about identity. They all end up being about identity at a really core level, you know, and Black Panther is no different. And so I don't expect with a filmmaker who's that focused on identity for him to ignore what is going on um, in this America right now. Um, and obviously, I don't think Trump will be a character. You know, they don't really do that in the Marvel Universe. But uh, I definitely think that there's a possibility that, you know, the issues, the way that Trump is, 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 is you know, permeated our culture will certainly be reflected. I, one might argue, like, that the Obama era is what gave some, you know, gives you the imaginative space for black people to have that battle with themselves because mm. they're able to in that public arena. Uh, and now in this more repressive time. You know, I think that you you have to battle the outsiders, maybe. Like, maybe the fight is not just with yourself, you know. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't, I mean, this is certainly something that has happened in the comics. I wouldn't be surprised at all to see Black Panther take on white nationalists. You know what I mean? Like, that to me seems like a pretty, you know, obvious villain for, you know, so obvious to you, maybe. Like, <laughs> like not so obvious to the president. That's true. I read, I read about this stuff for a living. But <laughs> there, there, there's a whole there's a whole category of Americans who do not think of white nationalists as an obvious villain. But that's another story. That's that's for a more that's for a more true regular enough. regular episode of the podcast. <laughs> so I am my own small business. I am an LLC. And because of that, I get to do a lot of business uh Mailing back and forth, um, you know, merchandise, uh, books. Um, I uh, mail out, actually, I've done Christmas cards and whatnot. And stamps.com is the way for me to do that without having to visit the post office uh, whenever I want. And stamps.com is basically the U.S. Postal Service just in your home for you. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips in your home. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter any package, any class of mail, using your own computer and printer, Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale and automatically calculate the exact postage. Stamps.com will even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. There is no need to lease an expensive postage meter, and there are no long-term commitments. I use Stamps.com, again, because I wind up doing a fair amount of business mailing. You know, we don't live in a paperless world. Some people like to send actual cards at Christmas. I am one of them. And right now, you can enjoy Stamps.com, too, with a special offer that includes four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type friends. That's Stamps.com, and click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, enter friends. This has been my episode to, like, actually, the the only way this conversation has been uncomfortable is that I get to ask you questions about a movie um, that, you know what I, I, I was thinking about? Why is this? Why is this conversation in keeping with the show? And one of the reasons is that I, it has to do with the Donald Glover profile. We, maybe we should have foregrounded that a little bit more. But it's that profile that made me realize this is going to sound so fucking cliche, but you're my friend. Um, I'm never going to know what it's like to not see through my white experience. Mm. Like, yeah. I'm just as much as I can love the Black Panther or appreciate Atlanta. I can't know what the experience of the joy that is being felt in black communities from seeing this movie. Mm-hmm. I'll just never know. I mean, and I don't say that wistfully, 
at all. Like, it's just usually I think I'll never I'll never know in kind of a bad way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I I think it's 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 a really interesting sentiment because I'll never know what it's like to see the world through white eyes either. But I have had that lens put in front of me my entire life on a much more consistent basis than mm-hmm. the reverse. Yeah. Let's just say. Yeah. I think that's just what what people are asking for is simply that there be a little bit more um, equanimity in that, you know, and that, 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 that we all be able to be, you know, not maybe forced is the wrong word. It's a little strong, but certainly encouraged to do the best we can to see how each other, you know, the others in our country and in our world live through their eyes through, and we do that in a big way through our art. So mm-hmm. I think that's why media representation matters. I think it's why it matters to have black creatives at every level of entertainment so that, you know, we can frankly not have to think about it so much, um, you know, not, not necessarily have to think about race and racism. We think about that all the time, but to not have to think about whether or not, uh, you know, everyone's perspective is being reflected, you know, and it, it, it's, while we're not, I don't think we're people are asking white people to completely understand what it is to be black. And I want to, and frankly, it's, you know, we, we just want people to take our word for it. I think that's a good place to end. I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your insights. Uh, your story was the cover story of Time Magazine. Congratulations on that. It's such a cool thing. Um, <laughs> Thank you, my friend. Uh, February 9th, you can look it up and uh, follow Jamil on Twitter. And uh, where else should they fo- be following you, my friend? Uh, Instagram, Jamil K. Smith. Uh, Facebook page is the same thing, Jamil K. Smith. And uh, Twitter is at Jamil Smith. All right. Hey, can I ask you a question? Does yeah, that make sense? That whole thing about like, I'll never know. Like, does that sound, does that sound stupid? Like, no, not in the least. Okay. Not in the least, because here's the thing. It's a question that frankly, I don't think uh, enough white people truly consider um, because they don't have to. And the fact that you are opening yourself up to that question, I think is a sign of progress. I hope so. I mean, it's just, it's just weird. Like I think about that all the time in terms of, you know, I'll never know what it's like to experience racism, but I was mm-hmm. thinking, cause I was thinking about that question of like, is this why, how white people feel all the time? And the joking answer is yes. We experience white supremacy all the time and feel that, but, but it's not true. Right. I mean, like, it's just white supremacy is you're, we're soaking in it. Like, well, I think, I think what happens is that white people don't, a lot of them don't understand how white supremacy hurts them. Right. And they don't understand how a lack of diversity, say, at their companies hurts their products. They don't understand how, um, you know, setting obstacles in front of, uh, you know, black students and even black educators hurts schools and hurts our overall education system. Um, I think that uh, and I think that's one of the really dangerous things about what this president and his followers are doing to our culture right now is that they are, they're sending a message that, you know, diversity is, is, is the enemy. Diversity is actually the thing that makes things bad. And it's, it's actually the literal opposite. It's the literal opposite. And that's why, you know, I don't think it's too harsh to 
to say that they are doing the work of white supremacy. Oh, come on, Jamil, you listen to the show. Like, yeah, no, they're, 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 yeah, it's not I too know. harsh. It's just, a, it's just like a fucking headline. Right. You know, but like I they're still, doing you know, the work still we of, have of white people supremacy. who are di- still dancing around that. Yeah. No, well, we're still, not we're, here. We're more than a year out. And true, not here. But, you know, I'm hoping that someone who, you know, writes for, you know, a particular outlet or goes punditing on, on cable or, or simply has a conversation around a dinner table, starts using that term a little bit more openly because that's the reality of what's happening. And it's not an overreaction. It's not hyperbole. It's not alarmism. It's simply reflecting reality. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about that with, you know, this, this, you know, what's going on with these, this show Atlanta and with black Panther to, you know, to, to their different extents, they reflect a reality that has gone underrepresented and, that's another one. <laughs> the reality that we're living under a, 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 you know, a presidential regime that is working for the goals of white supremacy. That is something that we don't hear enough of. Yeah. So allow me to add to the course. All right. All right. Well, thank you again and uh, be well. And that's it for the show. I promise to bring you back to your regularly scheduled discomfort uh, next week or, or at least the week after that. Thank you for making it all the way to the end of the show, super fans. You know who you are. Please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And have a good week. <laughs>